0: Hello, my name is Tiffany Miles-Presno, and I would like to welcome you to the first podcast I have ever done in my life. I'm hoping to do more, and the title of my podcast series is an educational podcast to increase public awareness of federal acts used for the genocide of indigenous people exploring how these acts created an invisibility of indigenous people and barriers for implementing new acts to protect them. So I wanna start with a land acknowledgement. Um, I'm from Maine, so my land, ag- land acknowledgement is for Maine people. We recognize that we're on indigenous land. In addition to the Abnaki, the broader place we now call Maine, is home to the sovereign people of the Wabanaki Confederacy. The Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and Mi'kmaq peoples. We exist on their unceded homelands. As I said, my name is Tiffany Miles Presnell, and I am a proud member of the Wabanaki tribes of Maine. I am the second born daughter into a family of half breeds. My father is Irish Wabanaki, and my mother's family were from the Penobscot tribe. I grew up on a reservation in Maine until later in life when my mother married a man in the military and we moved to Alaska. After his deployment finished, we moved back to my mom's homeland. The Wabanaki tribes of Maine comprise of four tribes with two separate Passamaquoddy reservations. So, if you look at a map of the reservations in Maine, it will appear that there are five tribes, but there are only um, four. Two of those reservations are Passamaquoddy reservations. Many years ago, before um, colonization, there were many Wabnaki people. It is estimated that there were probably over 32,000 Wabnaki members. But today there are approximately 8700 registered Wabnaki members. All of the tribes extend into Canada because they were there before colonization, which led to the creation of borders. As a result, tribal members have had to become accustomed to accessing the border. During the pandemic, very few people were allowed to cross the border into Canada, and there were a few exceptions, and medical people were allowed to cross back and forth from Maine to Canada. My father was lucky. He has a family physician that lives in Canada but works in Holton, Maine, which is only maybe five miles um, for that person to travel. But that can seem like forever when you can't go across the border to see your family. So since they started implementing that, my dad had to get a passport. In order to get a passport, he needed a birth certificate and a social security card, neither of which he had up until he was in his early 60s. Uh, that's, uh, that was a whole process for my dad to wrap his head around. But he did manage um, just in time for the pandemic to come through, and then he wasn't able to cross the border. But anyways, his doctor was kind enough to be the mule, I guess. um, and she would bring items from my dad's family to him in Maine, and then vice versa. So he was able to stay connected with his family in spite of that. So that was nice. so the the first the focus I want to have on this uh, podcast is just talking about genocide in this country. Towards indigenous people, so the term genocide was made from the ancient Greek word "genos," and it was coined by Raphael Lemkin, who is a Polish Jewish legal scholar, in 19, 1944 in his book titled "Axis Rule in Occupied Europe," and it originally meant the destruction of a nation or an ethnic group. On December 9th, 1948, the UN General Assembly adopted his coined word um, and noted that all periods of history genocide have inflicted great losses on humanity. And they defined it, they continue to describe it as, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group killing members of another group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the groups to another group. It is also clearly defined in the U.S. domestic law The United States Code in Section 1091 of Title 18 defines genocide as violent attacks with a specific intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, a definition similar to the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. According to historical records and media reports, since its funding, the United States has systematically deprived Indians of their rights to life and basic political, economic, and cultural rights through killings, displacement, and forced assimilation in an attempt to physically and culturally eradicate this group. Even today, Indians still face a serious existential crisis. According to international law and its domestic law, what the United States did to the Indians covers all the acts that define genocide and indisputably constitutes genocide. The profound sin of genocide is a historical stain that the United States can never clear. And the painful tragedy of Indians is a historical lesson that should never be forgotten. So we have um, certain acts that were put into play for the genocide of indigenous people. And I'm going to briefly touch on some of those today. And I'm going to revisit those throughout my podcast presentations So on July 4th, 1776, the United States of America was founded with the Declaration of Independence, which openly stated that he, the British king, has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages and slandered Native Americans as the merciless Indian savages. The US government and leaders treated Native Americans with a belief in white superiority and supremacy set out to annihilate the Indians and attempted to eradicate the race through cultural genocide. During the American War of Independence between 1775 and 1783, the US leadership transformed its plantation economy, as an adjunct to European colonialism, and to expand their territories, coveted the vast Indian lands. Thousands of attacks on Indian tribes, slaughtering Indian chiefs, soldiers, and civilians, and taking Indian lands for themselves. In 1862, the United States enacted the Homestead Act, which provided that every American citizen above the age of 21, with a mere registration fee of 10 US dollars, could acquire no more than 160 acres of land in the west lured by the land the white people swar- swarmed into indian areas and started a massacre that results in the death of thousands of indians leaders in the u.s government at that time openly claimed that the skin of indians could be peeled off to make fall boots that indians must be annihilated or driven to places that no one would go that Indians had to be wiped out swiftly and that only dead Indians are good Indians. Since the colonists set foot in North America, they had systematically and extensively hunted American bison, cutting off the, the food source for the Western Native American tribes, forcing them to die of starvation. Statistics reveal that since its independence in 1776, U.S. US government has launched over 1,500 attacks on Indian tribes, slaughtering the Indians, taking their lands, and committing countless crimes. In 1814, the U.S. government decreed that it would award $50 to $100 for each Indian skull surrendered. The Californian gold rush also brought about the Californian massacre. It was estimated in that time that from the 1850s and 60s, an Indian skull or scalp was worth $5, while the average daily wage was only 25 cents. So you can see how killing Indians and bringing their skulls would have been more profitable. In 1811, American troops defeated the famous Indian chief, Camusa and his army of the Battle of Tipperance burned the Indian capital and committed brutal massacres from November 1813 to January 1814. The U S army launched the Creek war against native Americans, also known as the battle of horseshoe bend that happened on March 27th in 1814, 3000 soldiers attacked the Creek Indians over 800 Creek warriors were slaughtered in the fight. And as a result, the military strength of the creeks were significantly weakened. On the same year, under the Treaty of Fort Jackson, the creeks seceded more than 23 million acres of land to the U.S. government. On November 29th, 1864, Pastor John Chivington massacred Indians at Sand Creek in Southeastern Colorado. Due to the opposition of a few Indians to the signing of a land-grant agreement, that was one of the most notorious massacres of Native Americans. A professor named Maria Montoya at the University of New York said in an interview that Chivington's soldiers scalped women and children, beheaded them, and paraded them through the streets upon their return to Denver. James Anya, former UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, submitted his report after a country visit to the United States in 2012, according to the accounts of the descendants of the victims of Sand Creek Massacre in 1864, around 700 armed US soldiers raided and shot at Cheyenne and Aparo people on the Sand Creek Indian Reservation in Colorado. Media reports show that the massacre resulted in the deaths of between 70 and 163 among the 200-plus tribal members. Two-thirds of the dead were women or children, and no one was held responsible for the massacre. The U.S. government had reached a compensation agreement with tribal descendants, which has not been delivered even to this day. On December 29, 1890, near the Wounded Knee Creek in South Dakota, U.S. troops fired at the Indians, killing and injuring more than 350 people. After the Wounded Knee Massacre, armed Indian resistance was largely suppressed. About 20 U.S. soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor. In 1930, the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs began sterilizing Indian women through the Indian Health Service Program. Sterilization was conducted in the name of protecting the health of Indian women, and in some cases even performed without the women's knowledge. Statistics suggest that in early 1970s, more than 42% of Indian women of childbearing age were sterilized. This resulted in the near extinction of many small tribes. By 1976, approximately 70,000 women had been forcibly sterilized. In 1830, the United States passed the Indian Removal Act, which marked the institutionalization of forced relocation of Indians in the country. The act legally deprived the Indian tribes of the right to live in the eastern United States, forcing some 100,000 Indians to move to the west of the Mississippi River from their ancestral lands in the south. The migration began in the heat and continued through the winter with sub-zero temperatures. This was later known as the Trail of Blood and Tears. In 1839, before Texas joined the United States, the government demanded that Indians be removed immediately or face the entire destruction of their possessions and the extermination of their tribe. Back then, large numbers of Cherokees who refused to comply were shot and killed. In 1863, the U.S. military carried out the Scorched Earth policy that forcibly removed the Navajo tribe, burning houses and crops, slaughtering livestock, and vandalizing property. Pregnant women and seniors who fell behind during during their removal were shot and killed. In the mid-19th century, nearly all American Indians were driven to the west of the Mississippi River and forced by the U.S. government to live in Native American reservations. To defend the unjust deeds of the U.S. government, some American scholars in the 19th century trumpeted the dichotomy of civilization versus barbarism and portrayed Native Americans as a savage, evil, and inferior group. I think I think some of that is still in existence today. In the 1870s and 80s, the US government adopted a more aggressive policy of forced assimilation. And um they they did this a few different ways. Um first, they fully deprived Indian tribes of their right to self-governments. So they took away any tribal systems that um, indigenous people were used to using and squashed that second, they destroyed Indian reservations through land distribution and ultimately disintegrated the tribes. The Dawes act, which I'm going to talk about more during this podcast that was passed in 1887 authorized the U S president to dissolve Indian reservations, abolish, the tribal land ownership and the original reservations and allocate land directly to Indians living inside of the reservations only. Um, also at this time Native Americans were prohibited to, to, to honor their religious and um, spiritual beliefs such as the Sundance I believe also the ghost dance was banned at that time. Um, also, the government took steps to fully impose American citizenship on the Indians. So Native Americans who were identified as mixed race had to give up their tribal status. And others were detribalized, which greatly damaged the Indian identity and also decreased what was officially indigenous people in this country was counted as indigenous people fourth the government eradicated the indian sense of community and tribal identity by adopting measures on education language culture and religion in a series of social policies beginning with the civilization fund act of 1819 the united states established and funded boarding schools across the country and forced indian children to attend by 1925, 60,889 Indian children had been forced to attend boarding skills schools. In 1926, 83% of Indian children were enrolled. The total number of students enrolled still remains unclear to this day. And this whole boarding school thing was guided by the idea of kill the Indian, save the man. The United States banned Indian children from speaking their native language, wearing their traditional clothes, carrying out any kind of traditional activities. They could not speak in their own language. They were not allowed to be Indian. Some of these kids died in these schools and a few years back there were several indigenous children's bodies found and it was It actually made the national news, and I'm going to talk about that more also in the upcoming podcast. And then um, we also had an um, extraordinarily amount of kids coming out of their homes and um, being placed forcibly placed into the care of whites, which was also a continuation of the assimilation policy. Those practices were not banned until 1978 when the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. Um, I I will say that later in further podcasts. I'm going to talk about this in great depth because I've done a lot of research in this area. And even after that law was passed, it continued to be violated. So there was a large drop in the population of indigenous people as a result of these laws and policies. Before the arrival of white settlers in 1492, there were 5 million Indians. Yet by 1800, the number plummeted to 600,000. And then according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of Native Americans in 1900 was only 237,000, the lowest in history, among them more than a dozen tribes, um, were completely extinct, such as the Pequot Mohegan from Massachusetts. They were extinct. Between 1800 and 1900, the American Indians lost more than half of their population, and their po- their proportion in the U.S. population dropped from 10.15% to 0.31%. Throughout the 19th century, while the U.S. population grew, every 10 years, the Indian population experienced a decline. Currently, the Indian and Alaskan Native population accounts for only 1.3% of the total U.S. population. I also want to talk about in this um, first podcast the deteriorating living conditions of Indigenous people. Many people are not familiar with what life looks like on reservations, and I also recognize that that varies from state to state and and the tribe that you were visiting, um, because some tribes have access to more resources. They're able to support themselves and even be profitable, whereas other tribes are living way below poverty standards, even probably, I would guess. Less than what some third world country citizens live like, especially out west. Um, so, all of them were pushed, most Indians were pushed from the east to the west. So, a lot of the Indian reservations located in remote areas that were unfit for agriculture because the whites took the property that was profitable or would be useful for agricultural uses so a lot of the tribes that are out west are scattered around and they're not in good places and they don't have access to water electricity um the housing there there's no way for me to describe it in a podcast um but it's 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 very disheartening um to see what life is like for some of the tribes out west there are currently about 310 Native American reservations in the United States. And that accounts for about 2.3% of the US territory and not all of those are federally recognized tribes and reservations. Most of these reservations are in remote barren areas with very poor living conditions, inadequate access to anything, water, food, healthcare, even the road systems are dirt or gravel, which is not any different than the tribes in Maine. The tribes in Maine, um, a lot of them still don't have access to drinking water. So it's not it's it's not just the West, but I'm I'm kind of highlighting that because those tribes are definitely bigger. Um, it feels to me like, and many indigenous scholars, according to research, describe this, is that. Native Americans are no longer the subject of extermination. Instead, they've been left to just be forgotten, invisible, discriminated against, and also just left there for self-extermination. And in future podcasts, I'm going to talk about what self-extermination looks like. Um, But due to time constraints today, I'm just going to stick with the genocide and the different acts, some of these different acts, highlighting on some of these different acts. Um, But to give you an example, I will just give you a couple examples. The U.S. government has used Indian reservations as toxic or nuclear waste dumps through the means of deception and coercion, subjecting indigenous people to long-term exposure to uranium and other radioactive materials. As a result, the cancer incidence and fatality rates in the communities concerned is significantly higher than any other part in the country. Indian communities have been nicknamed the garbage cans in the development process in the United States. So, for instance, the Navajo Nation Reservation, the largest Indian tribe in the United States, about a quarter of women and some infants have large amounts of radioactive substances in their bodies. During the 40-plus years prior to 2009, the U.S. government had reportedly conducted a total of 928 nuclear tests in the area inhabited by the Shoshone tribe of American tribes. And that produced about approximately 620,000 tons of radioactive fallout, nearly 48 times the amount of radioactive fallout from 1945 atomic bombing in Hiroshima. Um, There's also a lack of social security. So the life expectancies of American Indians is 5.5 years lower than that of average Americans and the incidence of diabetes, chronic liver disease and alcohol addiction are 3.2 times, 4.6 times and 6.6 times as much as the US average, respectively. Academic studies have shown that among all ethnic groups in the United States, Indians have the shortest life expectancy and the highest infant mortality rate. The incidence of drug and alcohol abuse among Indian adolescents is 13.3 times and 1.4 times higher than the national average. The suicide rate is 1.9 times that of national average. The U.S. government provides limited educational and medical assistance to Indians. Ninety nine percent of such assistance has gone to reservation residents, but 70 percent of the Indians live in cities and therefore cannot be covered. Again, I'm going to come back to this in a minute about how sovereignty works and how that impacts um, tribal people and indigenous people. In terms of education, the conditions of Indian reservations are much poorer than those of white American communities. According to the 2013 through 2017 statistics of the U.S. Census Bureau, only 14.3% of American Indians held a bachelor's degree or higher. In contrast, 15.2% for Hispanics, 20.6% for African Americans, and 34.5% of white Americans. The Indian reservations are struggling with dilapidated schools and a shattered education system. The New York Times reported that only 60% of American students in the Wind River Reservation finished high school, while 80% of white students in Wyoming graduated from high school. The dropout rate in the reservation is 40% more than twice the state average of Wyoming. Many reservations in the barren land of the Midwest have been grappling with economic stagnation and have come, become the poorest areas in the country. The poverty rate of some reservations has even surpassed 85%. According to the statistics of the U.S. Census Bureau in 2018, the poverty rate of American Indians at 24.25.4 percent was the highest among all ethnic minorities compared with 20.8% for African-Americans, 17.6% for Hispanics and 8.1% for white Americans. The median income of American Indian families was only 60% that of white families. Also, these poor economic conditions have led to some very serious law and order issues in the pine ridge reservation out west unemployed young youngsters often turn to gang culture in search of identity and belonging while alcoholism fighting and drug abuse are commonplace according to a research by the u.s national institute of justice more than 1.5 million american indian alaskan native women in the united states or 84.3% of the group's total population have suffered from violence in their lifetime. Also, many lawbreakers, and this has actually been referred to as a haven for criminals and sociopaths, drug dealers, human trafficking, all of that, they know the loopholes and the laws around sovereignty, And they know that they can go to the reservations and do the things that they want to do and how to get away with that. So. In mainstream American politics, the Indians and other Native Americans are choosing not to be silent. Rather, they have been silenced by the system and systematically erased. American Indians have a relatively small population and do not have a strong interest in politics. With a lower turnout rate in elections than that of other ethnic groups, their interests and demands are often ignored by politicians. As a result, American Indians have been reduced to second-class citizens of the United States, and they are often called the invisible minority or the vanishing race in the country. And that is what my, my podcast is all about, bringing attention to a population of people that has been Eliminated a race from mainstream, the mainstream population in this country, they are invisible. And I am trying to bring attention to the needs of indigenous people and and get people talking about what's happening to indigenous people, what has happened to them, what is continuing to happen to them, and and help spread the word and help learn more and, and share this information with each other. I want to go back and talk about for a second, um, how, what happened during the American Indian boarding schools. Now these happened from the 1870s to the late 1920s. And that is when these kids were removed and they were put in these homes and they were, they were forced to learn English and Christian, um, morals, and they were not allowed to be, um, to be who they were. They say that some of the kids were even kidnapped. And I can tell you from being part of the Wabnaki that if you choose to look into this, you will, you could watch the documentary Dawnland and learn that some of the indigenous kids remember being on the reservation and having station wagons and vans pull in and telling these kids to get in the car and go. And they did, and their parents were left behind wondering, where did my children go and will I ever see them again? While these kids were shipped out to horrific, horrific abuse. Some of them did not survive. I think it's important to remember that this is the history of the indigenous people being systematically and forcibly removed. There are some scholars that believe that information about Native Americans has been systematically removed from mainstream media and popular culture. According to a report by National Indian Education Association, 87% of state-level U.S. history textbooks do not mention the post-1900 history of Indigenous people. According to the Smithsonian Institute, things taught about Native Americans and American schools are full of inaccurate information and fail to present the real picture of the sufferings of indigenous people, which I know to be true. And I'm sure most people know this to be true when you were in school. They taught you that Thanksgiving was a happy time where the Indians and the pilgrims got together and had a great dinner together and had so much fun. The truth about Thanksgiving was not ever shared in school when I was a student Um, and my mom, I remember my mom being utterly horrified that that's what we were taught and she made sure we knew the truth, but many kids don't have that opportunity. A lot of, a lot of people don't learn anything about indigenous people until later on in life when they're, when they might run into somebody that's actually a tribal member. And then that's the first time their eyes are open to some of these things that are going on. Um, so domestic criticism has long been ignored by the U.S. government over the genocide of American Indians. First, the academic community has shared a view on this issue. Since the 1970s, American academics have begun to use the term genocide to denounce U.S. policies towards American Indians. I think that's probably the first time that that was really brought up. Second, the media has been calling for change on the issue. An article published in the New York Times reported that the UC Hastings College of the Law was named after a perpetrator of genocide, which accelerated the process of changing the name of the college. Some of these, some of these things are becoming are be, being more brought up more discussed and highlighted more even if you look at the mascots of sports teams the redskins is a very offensive term for indigenous people yet a sports team is still calls himself that there's still these caricatures of indigenous people and that's completely fine i do not know of a minority group in this country that that happens to other than indigenous people so I also, I want to talk also a little bit more about the Dawes Act. I want to talk about how they decided who was indigenous and who they weren't. So the Dawes Act was also known as the allotment, po- well, it's the allotment policy known as the Dawes Act. Um, that they were, the whole goal of that was to set out to decide who was indigenous and who wasn't. So this was decided by skin color. So they evaluated your Indianness. Non-Indigenous people would determine by looking at people if they were Indian. Lighter-skinned Indigenous people were considered more capable of handling their affairs or were not seen as needing protection or assistance from the federal government. Eugenics was the focus here, and some anthropologists actually claimed they could tell who was Indigenous and who wasn't based on physical characteristics. Only Native Americans who accepted their plots of of land on reservations were told they would be allowed to become US citizens. The rest of the land was sold as I spoke of previously and not to indigenous people. Indigenous people were then expected to enroll in whatever tribe they were assigned to. Now this was an impactful process because it continues to impact indigenous people still today. What does it mean to be registered with a tribe or to be on a tribal enrollment? And how has this impacted the genocide of Indigenous people? I will explain that now. Tribal roles are an enrollment process that was not created by Indigenous people. It was created by white policymakers. And... It was developed after the Civil War, when it became federal policy to remove indigenous children from their homes and communities and send them to residential settings. So all tribal members are expected to be enrolled with the tribe that they were actually assigned to. So if you have, for example, if you have a father who is Malisey and you have a mom that is Penobscot, you can enroll on all of the tribes. You have to enroll in one, even though it's under one clan. Why and that that just blows my mind because you're the person is actually a Wabnaki person and they shouldn't have to choose which reservation they want to be enrolled in. Many of these tribes are required to have a blood quantum for enrollment. Often, even if the blood quantum is met without a family member on the tribal role with documentation that proves this, the indigenous person will be unable to enroll with their tribe that means a lot to me. So my half brother, we had the same father, but his mom did not put our dad on his birth certificate. So my brother did not find out that his, that we, we didn't even know about each other until about 10 years ago, because his mom did not tell him who his real father was until he was an adult and he is unable to become a tribal member because he cannot prove who his father is so how that that just goes to show how that helps with genocide so my brother should actually be on the tribal roll and he's not so looking at the us census my brother doesn't count as indigenous therefore there's one less indigenous person and that's that's why that matters Also, tribal members are given a card once they are on the tribal enrollment that verifies who they are and what tribe they are a member of. I am unaware of any other naturalized citizen in the United States who has to prove who they are and then carry a card around with proof of who they are. To me, this is an outward display of racism, and I don't understand why indigenous people have to prove who they are. Well, I do. It's part of genocide. But when are we going to stop this? What is it going to take to stop some of these things? Additionally, indigenous people who cannot enroll with the tribe do not count in the census as indigenous. Hence, faster elimination of all tribal people across the country. Many indigenous people are not on the tribal enrollment for various reasons. One, I just shared back in those days when our parents were younger, my brother and I, um, when our parents were younger, it was not, it was not cool to be indigenous. Nobody talked about it. People did not proudly proclaim their indigenous roots. I remember one of my friends, um, her father sat her and her siblings down when they were 18 years old to have this serious conversation with him. And she told me she remembers her heart sinking, thinking, oh, my God, he's going to tell me he's dying or something. And all he wanted to tell them is that they were Micmac. But that was the severity of it. It was such a serious thing, and it was not a serious good thing. It was a brace yourself, kids. You're going to be horrified, but you're actually Micmac. And they knew they were Micmac. Um, But that's how bad it was considered to be indigenous in those days. So there's a lot of reasons why parents did not put their kids on the tribal enrollment. So now they're walking around uncounted for, and they don't count as indigenous people. Um, And that all falls into the kill the Indian, save the man era. Tribal enrollment and genocide go together like a glove on a hand. In future podcasts, I am going to talk about how tribal enrollment is used by federal acts and federal policies to eliminate Indigenous people continually. Additionally, some Indigenous people experience mental anguish generations after these laws as they seek to find who they are and reconnect with their culture and people. The last thing that I want to share is... Uh, my final thought that I took from the Wabanaki Reach in 2016. They put this quote on their webpage. You're more than welcome to look it up. And they said, and this is about the Wabanaki tribes in Maine, but I'm sure that tribes across the country would relate to this. The collective traumas of colonization affected nearly 100% of Indigenous people. Healthy child rearing practices were disrupted or warped by involuntary boarding schools. Native spiritual practices and traditions were banished and missionaries often replaced them with foreign religious forms that tore apart the community's social cohesion. It is like an epidemic hitting a society when its doctors and healers have been exterminated. No one escapes the ravage. Thank you for listening to my first podcast. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast and to the the ones, the nine more that I plan to, to do. Um, and I'm also asking that you please complete the evaluation tool. Please join me next time to discuss other acts in the United States for the genocide of Indigenous people. As you listen, please feel free to challenge your knowledge by doing additional research and sharing your feedback. And again, please subscribe to this podcast.